On that alone do we meditate, that alone do we worship, to that alone the witness of the universe do we bow, to that one who is our sole eternal support, the self-existent Lord, the raft to safety across the ocean of samsara, do we come for refuge. Om, peace, peace, peace. Good morning. Today our topic is deepening our meditation. And it was a very appropriate uh, opening song. This song was composed by Swami Vivekananda about the experience of complete absorption in Brahman, in Samadhi. So, Sri Ramakrishna used to encourage the devotees around him to dive deep. Dive deep, he would say. In meditation, one must be absorbed in God, he says. By merely floating on the surface of the water, can you reach the gems lying at the bottom of the sea? And he, he gives some uh, signs by which we can know is meditation really going well. He says, by certain signs you can tell when meditation is being rightly practiced. One of them is that a bird will sit on your head thinking you are an inert thing. This is one of the examples, one of the signs that our meditation is really getting deep. So I, want, I, I have a feeling that our meditation for most of us is not getting quite that deep. <laughs> In fact, maybe it's, it feels oftentimes like we're more or less floating on the surface. We're not really diving deep. We're not diving deep yet. When Sri Ramakrishna met Bankim Chatterjee, he told him, let me tell you something. What will you gain by floating on the surface? Dive a little under the water. The gems lie deep under the water. So what is the good of throwing your arms and legs about on the surface? A real gem is heavy. It doesn't float. It sinks to the bottom. To get the real gem, you must dive deep. Then Bunkim says, Sir, what can we do? We are tied to a cork. It prevents us from diving. Sri Ramakrishna continues, All sins vanish if one only remembers God. His name breaks the fetters of death. You must dive, otherwise you can't get the gem. Listen to a song. Then he sings the song he used to sing so much, that dive deep, O mind, dive deep in the ocean of God's beauty. If you descend to the uttermost depths, there you will find the gem of love. That's the famous song. Oh, my mind, dive, dive, dive down to the uttermost depths of the ocean. There you will find the gem, the gem of, the gem of love. So today I want to take up this topic of diving a little deeper, how we can get a little deeper into our meditation. I would, I'll offer some practical suggestions from my studies and my own experience. And uh, first I'd like to preface my remarks by, by saying that many of us have received instructions from a spiritual teacher in meditation. Those instructions will take precedence. Those instructions are 
to be followed. And if something I suggest conflicts with something that has been instructed by the spiritual teacher, then ignore what I say and follow what the guru has told. In India, we asked one, one of our senior monks was asked by one of the brothers, uh, what about the instructions that we received from the guru? Are those to be followed the whole life? And he said, yes, they are to be followed the whole life, but you can expand them, you can add to them. The, the instructions that are given, those are to be followed, but you can expand it. So maybe some of what I say today might fall into that category of expanding our repertoire or our, our toolbox in our meditation. Now in yoga philosophy, the mind is, there are five kinds of mind. The mind is, is divided into five different kinds of minds uh, according to its state, mental state. And uh, the first is called kshipta. Swami Vivekananda describes a monkey. He says the monkey is naturally restless. Then it is given some alcohol to drink, so it becomes even more restless. Then it uh, is stung by a scorpion, so it becomes absolutely mad, and then it is, becomes possessed by a demon finally. So this describes this first uh, state of mind, kshipta, Restless, it means it is uh, restless already, then it is drunk with the wine of desire, stung with the scorpion sting of jealousy, and uh, possessed by the demon of pride. So this is the, with a mind like Shipta, there's no uh, chance really for meditation. The second state of mind is mudha, stupefied, or in, completely infatuated with something. The third state of mind is called vikshipta. This means distracted. This is the state of mind which most, in which we, most of us, find ourselves. Not fully, rest, absolutely restless like a drunken monkey stung by a scorpion, but we get a little concentration on something, then we're distracted. We go to something else. Then, again, the mind goes to something else. This is the distracted state of mind. So... The next state is when we actually talking about meditation. It's called ekagra. That means one-pointed. The mind attains to one-pointedness when it fixes upon one thing alone. When the mind flows like a, an unbroken stream of oil. If you pour oil from one vessel to another, it's a single unbroken stream. When the mind becomes like that, it's called ekagra, one-pointed flowing to one thing only. This is the state which we are aspiring to attain in meditation, at least at first. There's a, even yoga philosophy talks about one more state called niruddha, which means arrested. Even that stream has stopped. In the song we just heard, that line, is, that line comes that... Uh, even that stream has stopped. The void has merged into the void. This is in the experience of samadhi, when even that one single stream stops. But I don't think we need to worry too much about that. At this point, we are trying to reach the fourth state of mind, the ekagra, the one-pointed state. It is in this state that we really begin to dive deep in meditation and that we get glimpses of supersensuous truth, that in this state that spiritual experiences, transformative spiritual experiences come. So this is our challenge, to move towards this state of one-pointedness. So when we think about calming our distracted mind and focusing it in meditation, the very first thing to examine is not what we're doing at the time of meditation, it's what we're doing at the time that we're not meditating. The very first thing is to see how we spend the rest of our time in the, in the whole day. We often want some, if we just knew the right mudra and the right mantra and the right pranayama, then we could meditate easily. It, does, it doesn't work like that. Uh, the half hour or the hour or the two hours or however long it is we spend in meditation are profoundly affected by how we spend the rest of our time. As an easy example, if we think, say we spend half an hour 
watching the news of uh, war in Afghanistan. And right after that, we switch off the TV and we go for meditation. Will we be able to meditate? I think we can all understand that it'll be very difficult because we'll just have seen all kinds of very troublesome images and news and all that. So likewise, actually, that extends to our whole day. One of our senior monks advised us, protect your contemplation. Protect your contemplation. I think he meant don't fill, we we shouldn't fill our minds with all kinds of rubbish that will come back to disturb us at the time of meditation. We should try to steer clear of controversies and big arguments that will only come to haunt us when we're trying to meditate. This clearly suggests that we are setting some priorities. Our priority then becomes getting deeper meditation, not being winning the argument, but protecting our contemplation. All right, so I need not win the argument because I want to have good meditation this evening. Those of us who have studied the Patanjali Yoga Sutras, we know that uh, the eightfold path of yoga outlined by Patanjali starts not with any meditation practices, but with the yamas and the niyamas, the ethical disciplines, not harming, ahimsa, satya, truthfulness, asteya, not stealing anything. So these ethical disciplines are the very foundation of a contemplative life. If we are... uh, tell a lie at work, or we cheat on our income taxes, these kind of things will, will disturb our meditation because it's living a life out of harmony. And meditation is, first of all, about attaining harmony, peace and harmony. These are disharmonious actions. They'll give us trouble in our meditation. So that's why before even taking up the subject of, of sitting down and, and focusing the mind, they uh, prescribe, the yoga teachers prescribe living a balanced life, a regulated life, an ethical life. So that we have to ask ourselves, if we're not getting good meditation well, do we really want it? Do we really want to dive deep? Do we really want the spiritual life? The spiritual life envisioned for us, outlined by, for us by Sri Ramakrishna, is a unified life in which all our, our whole being is offered as an offering to the divine. All our actions are consecrated to the divine. And daily meditation forms the cornerstone of that life. Daily meditation, daily drinking deep at the fountain of immortality. So the first step really is uh, forming the intention that, yes, I want the spiritual life. I want to dive deep in meditation and I, I know that the gems to be had, the, the value of this is far surpasses any, anything we can get in this world. Now, when we t- start to take up uh, meditation seriously, we are told that we should do it every day at the same time, at the same place. This is very important. The mind is a creature of habit. And if one day we decide we sit at 7 in the morning and the next day we think, well, today I'm, I'm not feeling really up to it at 7. Let me do it at 9. And then 9 o'clock, oh, maybe 9 o'clock, well, all right, 10 o'clock. So we meditate at 10 o'clock. And then the next day it becomes noon. And the, next, we, the mind is not going to settle down. The mind has to learn that at this time every day I'm going to sit and have my meditation. So it's, a, it's developing a habit. The mind learns by a routine. So every day, whether we feel like it or not, whether we're in the mood or not, still we sit. That way, gradually, the mind learns how to meditate. So I'll take up some, some specific points, not, none of which are absolutely essential, but all of which together will help us. And I'm sure many of us are already following all these things, but I think a a review of all these points is helpful. First of all, the importance of a place. Where are we going to meditate? We need some place in this world to meditate. Generally, we are advised to go to a quiet place. If we go to the bus depot and try to meditate there, it's going to be tough. 
Okay? We, need, we, take, we take some help from our environment. Some help from our environment. Swami Vivekananda suggests that if possible, we keep a separate room in our home for meditation. And he, he says about this, do not sleep in that room. It must be kept holy. You must not enter the room until you have bathed and are perfectly clean in body and in mind. Place flowers in that room always. They are the best surroundings for a yogi. Also, pictures that are pleasing. Burn incense morning and evening. Have no quarreling, nor anger, nor unholy thought in that room. Only allow those persons to enter it who are of the same thought as you. Then gradually there will be an atmosphere of holiness in the room, so that when you are miserable, sorrowful, doubtful, or your mind is disturbed, the very fact of entering that room will make you calm. I think many of us feel when we enter this temple, we feel a, a kind of peace, because this temple functions in this way. We, we conduct our meditation here, we don't conduct, uh, we don't have arguments here, we, don't, uh, we just keep and we do regular worship. So the room develops a certain holiness a certain vibration. In fact, that is another point that one can come to the center or come to, come to a temple that's established and take advantage of the vibrations here and take advantage of the others who are meditating here. The monks meditate here morning and evening and to meditate along with other people who are meditating often can give us a little impetus. In fact, uh, when I first joined the monastery in Trabuco, we had, I, I would say, a, a kind of little bit of a healthy competition. We would be sitting for meditation, and maybe after 45 minutes or so, one feels, feels like getting up. But then we see, oh, he's still sitting. Oh, all right, all right, I'll sit for another 10 minutes. <laughs> and I think he was also thinking, thinking the same thing. <laughs> so that way, a little healthy competition, sit a little longer. So as I mentioned, the, the importance of time as I mentioned, every day at the same time, the period when the night turns into day and again when the day turns into night, those times are said to be particularly good for meditation, that there's a certain peace in nature. However, in modern urban life, the, the evening time, it, we don't feel that peace because there's too much, that's the rush hour, that's, that's really... So really the best time for meditation for us, is early in the morning. There are several points. On the first, it's the quietest part of the day. The mind is refreshed after a night's sleep. The mind is not filled with all the things that, are, that happened during the day or during the previous day. The mind is relatively clear. And uh, also, it doesn't disturb others. If we, many of us live in families, and uh, some of the family members may even, oh, you poke fun at us or ridicule us. Oh, you're becoming spiritual now. You're meditating. So if we do it early in the morning before other people get up, they don't even have to know about it. That way we can do it quietly and easily. So something about setting the time for meditation. When we sit for meditation, you know, sometimes we see here in this temple somebody will be sitting for meditation and their phone will go off. And then hustle, bustle, bustle, fumble, fumble, and they run outside and answer the phone. Now, if you're waiting for a phone call and ready to answer it, your mind is not going to go deep in meditation. We're not going to be able to do it that way. When we sit for meditation, we unplug the phone, turn off the phone. For the next half an hour, I'm not going to be disturbed. We make an agreement with our family members. For the half hour that the door is closed in the shrine room, don't bother me. If there's a phone call, don't call me. I'll call them back. It's a question of priorities. Is it is our priority to talk to anyone who calls on the phone or to get a little deeper in our meditation? Place of study. Study also can be very helpful for a good meditation. To read a little bit of inspiring anecdotes about saints and sages or a little teaching on spiritual life or meditation before we actually sit. Swami Atmagyananda and I both make use of this method. In the morning before we come to the temple, we spend a little time in holy reading, just by ourselves. 
it helps to cultivate a mood. Because often, and Swami Atmagyananda has talked about this, the mood for meditation is very important. If we can cultivate a mood, the mind naturally turning inwards, we can take the help of some holy reading. We can take the help of some music, so singing a song to set our mood before we start our meditation. Also, a regular habit of study helps keep the mind on a higher plane throughout the day. If we have, every, Swami Swahananji used to recommend every day read a little bit, one or two pages of some philosophical reading and also one or two pages of some more easy reading, some uh, inspirational reading on conversations recorded with Sri Ramakrishna or other uh, great saints. So now we come to asana. How are we going to sit? Generally we sit when meditating, although... One could lie down, but the danger in lying down is that one is very likely <laughs> to fall asleep. I think we all know it. Generally, we don't give much emphasis on asana, on, on our posture in sitting. We, we only, it's only said, just keep your back straight, that's all. But I think it's my feeling that we don't give enough attention to asana. Patanjali, in the, yoga sutra, in the Eightfold Path of Yoga, he has given an entire step just to this. An entire step is dedicated to asana, to a proper position. And in some schools of Buddhism, particularly in Zen Buddhism, the posture is very much emphasized, and it's also helpful. We become established in an asana. It means when we take our seat and we take the particular position, which is our meditation position, our mind naturally starts becoming calm. Why? Because that position is associated with meditation already. And it's a position in which we can sit for a long time undisturbed. It's not a, it's not a position that every three minutes we shift and move. And It's a position, that's why it takes some time actually to gain mastery over the asana, because we have to, at first... When we sit in the same position without moving, our leg will begin to hurt, or our arm will begin to feel uncomfortable, or we'll get an itch on our shoulder. So many different things come. These are the tricks of the mind to make us move and, and break our meditation. Rather, we have to persist and develop our asana, perfect our asana. So, first of all, the spine, the chest, the neck, and the head need to be in a straight line. The nerve currents pass along the spinal column, within the spinal column, so these need to be kept in a straight line. And uh, Swami Yatishwarananda suggests that we find two positions, so that when one starts to become uncomfortable after 15 or 20 minutes, we can easily and quickly shift to the second position. It may be if we're sitting on the floor with our legs crossed, we simply put that we had the right leg in front and the left leg behind, and we just switch them, something simple like that. And I feel that the best position is an unsupported back. Most of, I think many people sit with their back against the chair, but there's a certain laziness in having the back supported by the chair. We can just sort of start to collapse if we keep, now, the way to sit in a chair, the Zen Buddhists have developed this system of sitting in the chair. One sits on the edge of the chair, not all the way to the back, but on the edge of the chair, on the front half of the chair, with one's feet placed firmly on the ground, one's hands in one's lap, and the back straight. It's straight by our own effort. We want full consciousness in meditation. So our posture a posture which we consciously maintain, in which we consciously maintain our straight back, helps to maintain full consciousness in the meditation. And uh, we are trying to forget the body. So a posture in which we can sit without moving with our straight back actually helps us forget the body as we become established in it. Uh, I'll give an example uh, just now we were in Tennessee on retreat with uh, some devotees and one woman after the, a few meditations she complained to uh, Swami Ishtanda, Maharaj, I can't meditate at all. I, I get, I'm getting so restless. I felt like just running out right in the middle. And then she confessed that when she's at home, 
She meditates in a rocking chair, and she's got lots of cushions, and every part of her body is nicely supported and comfy cozy. So she can, she can get nice and relaxed in her chair. And, and so here she was in a new location, and there was no, her chair wasn't there, so she was sitting in a regular chair, and she couldn't meditate at all because she's, she needs that comfy, cozy chair. I wonder how her meditation is going. I wonder if she isn't just uh, having a nice nap. So I would suggest at least give it a try. I think many of us have had the habit for many years of sitting with our back supported by the chair. But uh, even then, please give it a try. Give it, give it a try. All right. Let's talk a little about breath. The breath, breathing, is another important aspect of, a physical aspect of meditation practice. Swami Vivekananda, of course, suggests that we begin our meditation period with some regulated breathing, measured breathing, he calls it. Slow, deep, rhythmic breathing. And connecting with it, the chanting of a sacred word, like Om. He suggests Om. At that time, of course, the, the body must be kept straight, as we discussed. And the breathing is from the, the diaphragm, diaphragmatic breathing. Not by expanding the ribs, but by bringing the air into the lungs from the diaphragm. In, we had that uh, Buddhist monk here for the interfaith talk at the temple opening, and he gave an example of how the Buddhists have really perfected this. He, he said, breathing in, breathing out. Like that, he gave the example. This is uh, because the mind and the breath are connected. Mind and the body are connected. And as the mind becomes calm, the breathing becomes regulated. But as the breathing becomes regulated, the mind also becomes calm. And this kind of rhythmic breathing can be maintained throughout the meditation period. It helps prevent drowsiness. And uh, I, I think that often drowsiness is caused by insufficient oxygen, that we start forgetting to breathe deeply, and we start getting drowsy. So it becomes a habit. If we make a practice of it, after a while it becomes a habit, and we don't have to think about it. But the breath continues slow and deep throughout the meditation. Maybe we're chanting our mantra afterwards, but the, the breath is continuing in that slow, deep breathing. We're breathing in. We can breathe in purity and calmness. And when we breathe out, let go of all disturbances. Just let them all go. And feel the whole body become energized with the power of the breath. Swami Vivekananda says, you will do well to join to the breath the repetition of some word as Om or any other sacred word. Let the word flow in and out with the breath, rhythmically, harmoniously, and you will find the whole body is becoming rhythmical. And he explains the science behind it. He says, the science of breathing is the working through the body to reach the mind the working through the body to reach the mind. In this way, we get control of the body, and then we begin to feel the finer working of the body, the finer and more interior, and so on, till we reach the mind. Sri Ramakrishna also says, the nerve currents and breathing calm down when the mind is concentrated. Again, the mind is concentrated when the nerve currents and breathing calm down. Then the buddhi, the discriminating power, becomes steady. So uh, I think we can do well not to neglect the breath as a part of our meditation practice, that it is an important aspect of calming the mind and of going deeper in meditation. So all these things we discussed, they really f fall under preliminary practices, and they're all physical things. But though they are preliminary, I think neglecting them is a mistake. And proper attention to these kinds of things sets the stage for deeper meditation. It tunes the system for diving deep. At the time of spiritual initiation, as most of us know, the teacher explains the process of meditation to the student and also gives a mantra, 
a holy word, a usually a name of the divine, a name of God, along with a form connected with that name on which to meditate. But it's not merely telling a name. It's often likened to planting a seed, planting a living seed in the heart of the disciple. Some spiritual power is transmitted during initiation. Some spiritual power is transmitted, which manifests over time as the disciple practices. The seed begins to grow. And this is one great help in spiritual life. So I didn't want to neglect to mention the importance of initiation in helping us to dive deep, in helping us to deepen our meditation. There comes a time when some people say that, uh, well, no, I'm not ready for meditation. I should be, I should be, they feel perhaps that they should be able to meditate deeply before they are fit for receiving an initiation. The whole, that's actually backwards. We're not, we're not getting deep in meditation. Perhaps one reason is because we haven't got the initiation, because we haven't been taught how to meditate. So initiation is an important step in spiritual life and, uh, is a great help. The specific instructions given by the teacher to the disciple vary according to the teacher and the disciple. So we can't say that there's one instruction given to all. But general instructions are will involve repeating the mantra as part of our meditation and generally envisioning the sacred form associated with that mantra. This repeating of the mantra is called japa. Japa is repeating the mantra, and it's a wonderful practice. It's done at the time of meditation. It can also be done all throughout the day and at any time of day or night, whatever we may be doing. It has a great power. The divine name is said to have a great power and uh, really a power to transform our whole life. Japat Siddhi, Japat Siddhi, the Holy Mother used to quote, from japa comes perfection. From japa comes realization. Sri Ramakrishna says, japa means silently repeating God's name in solitude. When you chant his name with single-minded devotion, you can see God's form and realize him. Suppose there is a piece of timber sunk in the water of the Ganges and fastened with a chain to the bank. You proceed link by link, holding to the chain and you dive into the water and follow the chain. Finally, you are able to reach the timber. In the same way, by repeating God's name, you become absorbed in him and finally realize him. Those of us who have uh, been chanting mantra for a long time, some of us find that it, the mantra becomes awakened. The, book, the scriptures say that at a certain point, the mantra becomes awakened when it has been repeated a certain number of times and its power increases over time rather than wearing out or something. The mantra's power increases. Now the mantra is first given by, spoken by the teacher and repeated by the student. And then in meditation, the student will repeat the mantra. There are three levels of repeating the mantra. First is audibly, so anybody can hear it. The second is just inaudibly, but Still, the lips are moving. The meditator himself can hear a little bit the mantra being spoken. And the third is without any sound at all, completely internally. The most inward kind of japa is considered to be the most effective. And in that inward repeating of the mantra, even the tongue and the lips don't move. They don't move at all. It's done completely within. But even here, we find something interesting. Though the lips and the tongue may not be moving, but still the impulse to move the tongue, the impulse to move the lips is coming. This may, I feel that this holds us back from diving deeper into the mantra because it's still connected with our speech organ. The mantra being repeated is connected with the organ of speech and somehow keeps us from diving deeper into it. So how to go beyond this impulse of wanting to move the lips and the tongue while repeating the mantra? One way may be to feel that we, are, we can listen to the mantra rather than feeling that we are repeating the mantra, feel that we are hearing the mantra. We are hearing it being recited 
bubbling up from deep within, or feel that the mantra is falling down from above and entering our being. The Sri Chaitanya's prayer has a beautiful line, O name, stream down in moonlight on the lotus heart, opening its cup to knowledge of thyself. Here the name is envisioned as, the mantra is envisioned as streaming down in moonlight. There are certain flowers, certain lotuses, which bloom at night in the moonlight. So here the heart is likened to one of those lotuses that opens at the stream of the mantra, flowing, streaming down in moonlight on it. We can try to feel the vibration of the mantra throughout the whole body. Rather than feeling it just here in the lips and the throat, we feel it vibrating in the whole body. The mantra is nothing but vibration. It's sound vibration. So we're hearing it, we're feeling it in the whole body. This is a way to take us deeper, to really dive into the mantra, to feel it vibrating in our whole body, and we can expand it and let the whole room be vibrating with the mantra. Swami Shraddhananda, in his book, Seeing God Everywhere, there are a couple of articles towards the back about mantra, about mantra and about this experience of, of practice and experience of feeling the mantra vibrating in the whole room. So when the mantra is vibrating like that throughout the body, it's purifying the body, completely purifying it, divinizing the whole system, making the whole system divine. And the important thing about this is that the mantra, the name of God and God are one. The name and the named are one. There is an unbreakable connection between the name and the named. So as the, the more we can have the mantra vibrating in our whole system, the more the divine is manifesting there. Now, for many of us, a lot of the time we may experience what we sometimes call, it's called mechanical japa. We're repeating the mantra, but we're also thinking about all kinds of other things. The mind is running off to our work and to what we're going to cook and to our family and to our friends and all these things. And the mantra is still going on, but it's not really getting, mind is not getting focused. Someone asked Swami Vivekananda, is it good to practice japa like this? Though the mind may be wandering, is it good to practice japa for a long time? And he answered, yes. As some people break a wild horse by always keeping his seat on his back. So breaking a wild horse, you keep the saddle on the horse, and though it runs around and tries to shake it off, you keep it there for a long time. In the same way, he, he says, yes, even though the mind is wandering, keep doing the japa, keep doing the japa, and to break the wild horse of the mind, as it were. So continuing with mechanical japa, eventually the mind settles down. On the other hand, it is easy to waste time in this way, giving only a little bit of the mind to japa and thinking about all sorts of things. Rather, when we're finding this tendency... I think we need to realize that we need to struggle a little more. We need to add a little more awareness to our meditation. We need to cultivate a firmer determination. And we strive to develop a taste for the holy name. A taste for the holy name. This is one of the points emphasized by the teachers of bhakti. To a namiruchi, the namiruchi, the taste for the holy name. As we go on repeating the name, we develop a taste for it. It begins to taste sweet. It begins to give us an inner joy. Another help in our meditative life, rather than spending some hours in mechanical japa, we can take the help of prayer. Sri Ramakrishna instructs us again and again to pray. And not only to pray, but to call on God. He uses the... He doesn't say use the term prathana, which means prayer, but dhaka, to call. He says, call on God, call on the mother. Again and again, he instructs us to do so. The thing is, to succeed in meditation by our own strength is very difficult indeed. But prayer calls in divine help. We need divine help. We need the help of the mother. We need the help of the Lord if we're going to dive deep in meditation. And the way to get the help of the Lord is to pray for it, to ask for it. So 
I think we often neglect prayer. At the time of meditation, we simply sit and struggle with the mind trying to focus it. If there's too much struggling going on, another way to help focus the mind is to pray, to pray intensely. We are having in prayer, in devotional prayer, a conversation with the Beloved. And through this conversation, the, the, the different things that we're all thinking about, we, we pull the mind back from those things because we're having a one-on-one -on -one conversation. It's a, a way to focus the divergent rays of the mind onto one point, like a lens, like a lens focuses the rays of the sun. It connects us to our chosen ideal. We start developing a relationship with our ideal. And it opens our heart to receiving the response, the divine response. And we are guaranteed the response. Sri Krishna in the Gita, again and again, he promises, you think, think, of, think on me, meditate on me, worship me. You will, you will come to me, and moreover, I will carry you across the ocean of samsara. In contemplative prayer, though this is a, a big subject, it often can help to start with a memorized prayer or a song. M many of our songs are actually prayers. And repeat it slowly, deeply within. And gradually, as we repeat that prayer, it might be five lines or ten lines, gradually we can distill it down to one line. We might distill it down to one phrase. Lord, have mercy or mother, come to my aid, or thou art my all in all, or naham, naham, tuhu, tuhu, not I, not I, but thou. It's a different from struggling with the mind in, in uh, meditation because it involves more of the will, and gradually as this kind of prayer gets deeper, we find that it turns into meditation. And then we are ready to take up the mantra and dive deep into it with the mood cultivated by that intense prayer. I think it, it comes of itself when we get desperate, when we realize finally we're not going to be able to concentrate our minds on our own. We need some assistance. Then we turn to intense prayer, seeking divine assistance. And the help does come. Well, we're sort of running out of time. I think I'd like to take up just a couple of last points. Patanjali describes one important way of dealing with troublesome thoughts. Maybe there's a particular thought that's really haunting us. It keeps coming back and we're not able to overcome it at the time of meditation. There's a method which he calls pratipaksha bhavana, raising an opposing thought raising an opposing thought. Swami Vivekananda describes it. He says, For instance, when a big wave of anger has come into the mind, how are we to control that? Just by raising an opposing wave. Think of love. Sometimes a mother is very angry with her husband. And while in that state, the baby comes in and she kisses the baby. The old wave dies out and a new wave arises love for the child. That suppresses the other one. Love is opposite to anger. Similarly, when the idea of stealing comes, non-stealing should be thought of. But this is extremely effective, particularly when that thought is first poking its head up, when it's first starting to come into our mind. If it becomes a full-blown wave of anger, it's going to be more difficult. So this highlights the importance of remaining aware. When we start noticing that same old thought coming, we raise an opposite thought, or we connect it to our chosen ideal. We, we, pray, we pray about it. Swami Brahmananda gives another very helpful suggestion. He says, someone asks him, what shall I do if a thought that I know is harmful keeps rising in my mind? He says, think to yourself, this thought is immensely harmful to me. It can bring about my ruin. It is my worst enemy. Impress the idea again and again upon the mind. Once you can stamp this impression upon the mind, you will find the distracting thought vanishing in no time. 
The mind is a wonderful thing. Whatever it is taught, it will learn. Then he gives the example of giving poison to a child. If you give poison to a child, he'll eat it, no problem, he doesn't know. But if someone gives it to you, you'll say, no way, and you'll leave the place because you know it's poison. So when we learn that a certain thought, when we learn that an anger thought is actually poison, then we easily give it up. And lastly, I'd like to take up the, the topic of, the, of uh, sleep. Sleep is a formidable obstacle in meditation, getting sleepy. And all meditators struggle with it from time to time, or maybe for a long time. Laya, sleep. It's very sneaky, because we feel just fine, and somehow it creeps up on us. And suddenly, we find that 20 minutes have gone by, and our head is on our chest. So, and the tragedy is not even being aware that we're sleeping. That many people may think that, oh, I had a good meditation, I feel so rested. Huh. Was it, maybe it was just a good nap. This is a, uh, a, a real challenge. And we, the, important, the most important thing is to be aware when we are sleeping, to notice when we are sleeping. That's one of the benefits of sitting with a straight back, not supported by the chair, but sitting up. And if we, keep our, uh, if we meditate with using a mala and repeat the mantra with a mala, we keep our hand above. If we find that the hand has dropped to the lap, that's a sure sign that we're dozing, a sure sign. We, we may think it's otherwise, but we're just relaxing. It's a sure sign we're dozing. So the first point is to be aware, notice that we're getting drowsy. Also, actually, first we need to ask ourselves, are we getting enough rest at night? One of the causes of sleeping meditation is that we simply didn't get enough sleep. So we need to get enough rest before we take up meditation. Then, then this point, we, we become aware of the drowsiness creeping up on us. Then we have to take some kind of action to break it. Maybe we open the eyes, look at, look at, uh, at the altar in our meditation room or at the blue sky or wherever we are, whatever is going to wake us up, open our eyes, take some deep breaths. Or change what we're doing. If we are repeating the mantra, start praying. Or if we, if we need to get up, go splash some cold water on our face, go back and sit down again. Walk. I've seen, there was one monk in uh, Belermud. Every morning at the time of meditation, he would be walking around the temple with his, just look, with his eyes half closed and walking around and around and around the temple. Evidently, he was really struggling with sleep in meditation and he was determined to break it. So he took this extreme step of not even sitting down, just walking. And he would walk for 45 minutes or so around the temple, meditating as best as he could while walking. So uh, there's a last method followed by myself and some other monks, which is not actually recommended by the scriptures and not generally recommended by the meditation teachers, but I find it to be highly effective. That... (laughs) That is to take a cup of tea before our meditation. And a, a nice cup of tea uh, while reading, reading a holy book, that uh, at least helps me to stay awake during meditation. So I think we dealt, we addressed some of the important ideas for trying to deepen our meditation, some practical points for overcoming some of the obstacles and trying to dive a little deeper. I think ultimately, which I mentioned already, that the, the, the most important factor is our longing. Do we, do we really want it? Do we really want spiritual life? Do we really want to find the gem within? It's something that Sri Ramakrishna emphasized as the essence of spiritual life, something that cannot really be taught, but something that uh, can be cultivated. If we have a little bit of it, we protect it, and we fan the, the smoldering embers of our longing and build up the blaze of longing. So I thought I could close with some inspiring exhortations from Swami Brahmananda. Can one know God by oneself? Can the intellect grasp him? 
Surrender yourself to him. Love him. Yearn for him. Seek refuge in him. Be mad for him. The one purpose of life is to know God. Learn to be absorbed in him. Activity is not the goal. Work without attachment is only a means to absorption in God. Meditate and dive deep. As you dive deep, you will know that God alone is real and that everything else is unreal. Enough of study and argument. Now gather the forces of your mind and direct them toward God and God alone. Plunge into the ocean of bliss. Do not sacrifice eternal joy for the sake of ephemeral pleasure. Worldly pleasures will seem insipid to you when once you have tasted the divine bliss. You may see many attractive sense objects before your eyes now, but where will they be when you close your eyes in death? These objects of enjoyment lead a person from darkness to greater darkness. Which path will you take? The path that leads to darkness or the path that leads to light? Ah, my children, you have glimpsed that path of light. Do not turn back to the path of darkness. Be strong in his strength, and this very strength will free you from the net of Maya. He alone has known God's grace who has overcome this world. Tvameva mata chapita tvameva Tvameva bandhuscha sakha tvameva Tvameva vidyadravinam tvameva Tvameva sarvam mama deva deva Kayena vacha manasendriva Buddhyatmanava prakritesvabhava Karomi yadyat sakalam parasmai Narayanayeti samarpayami Om shanti 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 Thou alone art my mother Thou alone art my father Thou alone art my friend My companion art thou alone Thou art my knowledge, my wealth art thou, thou alone my all in all, O God of gods. Whatever we do through our body, speech, mind, senses, intellect, soul, or even unconscious natural impulses, all that we dedicate as an offering to the Supreme Lord, Om, peace, peace. 